Welcome back to Almost Heretical. So excited that you're here. We're continuing a series that we started called Canon Formation, and we're looking at how did we get this book that we have, and, and you know, different different groups of Christians, Catholics, there's been different forms of this canon, different books included, but how did we get this Bible, these biblical texts that we have? And I thought it would be great, Shelby, if we started off, we have a private, safe Facebook group where you can join and become a part of this community of listeners, and we ask people in that group questions and we get their feedback on things like that. And so we have we have uh, questions from that group. I'd like to just throw a couple of those. And some of these might not be things we're going to discuss right now. You might say, hey, we're going to discuss that in two, three episodes. You might have a quick thought on one or two of these things, but let's let's jump into these. And if you want to join this Facebook group, you can go to almostheretical.com. It's a supporter-only group, $5 a month. You join that group and um, you also get Zoom calls. You get our second podcast that we do. You get all that good stuff. So I'd love to uh, see you in there, and it's a real fun community that we have growing there. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Michelle says, love the first episode I heard in another podcast. I think she's talking about, like, not our show. Someone else's podcast. That there was debate over the acceptance of Revelation and that it was only accepted with the contingency that it not be used for eschatology, which means study of end times. I don't know how accurate my memory is or how true that is, but I'd love to hear more. Having family members take that... Uh, that take that as literal and predictive of future events feels harmful and has been painful. Thanks for all that you do. Yes, that is a really um, interesting and exciting topic. The book of Revelation. Um, Michelle, you are, whatever you, whatever podcast you heard that on is correct. The book of Revelation was one of the most controversial um, as to be added into the New Testament canon. Uh, and we actually are going to talk more about it specifically in the next episode, which will be about mm-hmm. the criteria for canonization. So let's talk about it more there. But yeah, uh, let's let that pique your interest and also be some assurance that it's not predicting the future as your relatives probably think it is. Yeah. So visions of Kirk Cameron running through my head. Mm-hmm. Which, taken out of context, that could sound really weird, but uh, in this... <laughs> Sounded yeah. like the night before Christmas. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, um, Holly says, can you incorporate why certain Pauline letters made the cut, like the ones that might be written by another person other than Paul? Yes, also going to be also gonna be in this in our next episode. Right before we talk about Revelation, we'll be talking about those Pauline letters, um, particularly for Second Timothy and Titus, and that they were... Um, almost certainly, I mean, scholars are fairly have a fairly common consensus that they were not written by Paul, which, as we'll discuss, is not a huge deal. But then that's a very legitimate question of why did they get added to the canon? And why is that never said in church? Because it sounds pretty scary. Like, we're, we've been taught that these are written by Paul, and then to say, actually, they're not. It sounds like you're being fed a lie, but really the lie we were fed is that they were written by Paul. Do you so. think that most pastors know mm. that they were not written by Paul? Um... Well, let's see if they Because didn't... there's a difference between a, a you know, masters of uh, divinity and a masters of biblical mm-hmm. studies, right? Like you're studying some of the same things in there. Like sure, like a masters of divinity, you are going to look at the Bible as an ancient text and those type of things. But mostly you're looking at... Like how to be a pastor. How to be a pastor, how to, how to shepherd, how to... You know, create a good sermon and history of the church, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I... That, I think that probably most pastors who have had some kind of formal training, like in a seminary, would probably have encountered, at least in some form, the idea that 
first, second Timothy and Titus were probably written by someone under the name of Paul. Were there more than that that we're not sure about as far as Paul writing? Um, maybe a couple, but those are the the main ones. But, but overall, yeah, I'd say that that kind of topic isn't really the focus of most seminary programs. Like that's just kind of what you're saying. There's a big difference between an academic study of the Bible, which usually is under the topic of biblical studies and um, seminary and study of divinity and theology. Like those are often lumped together, but they're very different. And um, yeah, most seminary training focuses more on the practical outworking of how to, you know, make the, take the Bible and use it as a pastor rather than really analyzing is this, what we've always thought it was. Mm. Okay, let's see here. Jonathan says, why these four Gospels? How do we know these Gospels were actually trustworthy? What does it mean for something to not necessarily be factually true, but Mm -hmm. true in essence? I've heard that a lot, and it's kind of confusing. We're actually going to get into that a bit in this episode, that concept of what what is true, what does truth mean, what is that... Same as factuality, all all of that, um, and then why these four gospels? We'll get a bit more into that in the next episode, talking about the criteria of canonization. But obviously, I mean, even built into that question is how can we know that these are trustworthy? Um, I don't. There's no way to know anything. <laughs> like even the original people putting together the canon, they didn't know. It's based on it's based on a group consensus and based on time in which these have proven themselves to be useful and based on a group's, you know, majority of people trusting in these, but there is no way to know for sure. There's no divine stamp of approval from heaven. So the way that we come to trust them is essentially by consensus. Well, and I think that word trustworthy, we were chatting about this yesterday Mm. with my grandma. Mm -hmm. Hi, grandma. His grandma's wonderful. Hi, grandma. She's a listener of the show. Love you. Um, but the word true or trust, that's something you can trust. Um, I feel like there's a lot of just Western culture baked into that question too, right? Which I get. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's a bad question. I'm just saying the idea of, I mean, what do you mean? What can right. you trust it? Probably what, was it Matthew who wrote this question? Uh, Jonathan. Jonathan meant by this question is how do we know that these are the things that actually happened? But saying, are they trustworthy, doesn't really, doesn't have to mean that. It could mean, how do we know that this is something worth incorporating into our lives? That's another form of trust. Or how do we know this is something worth, you know, basing our beliefs on? It'd be kind of like, I think maybe, if you think of it like this, like, it's like asking, like, how do we know that the song Amazing Grace is, is trustworthy and true? It's like, well, maybe that's not the right question. Maybe it's how do, like, we know that this song, for for whatever reason, has, like, been passed on over Mm -hmm. the last... How long? A couple hundred, couple hundred, hundred years. Yeah. Whenever William Wilberforce right. was around. Yeah. So is the question of is it true or is it trustworthy is probably not as important of a question as is it, in which ways is it, is it helpful or beneficial or in some ways, you know, inspiring to the people that were singing it and thought this is the this is one along with a bunch of others but this is one that should be continue to be sung or passed on or something like that yeah and i i can't remember i don't think i used this example already on on the show but that i was just talking the other day with um lucy um nate's daughter my stepdaughter she's seven and i had told her the story of the boy who cried wolf 
And after I kind of related the whole story, she said, did that really happen? And, or, or was it, or maybe she even said like, is that story true? I think that's what she said. Is that story true? So I said, well, I, I don't know if it actually happened exactly like that, but do you, if it, if something like that did happen, do you think that people would maybe not trust that, you know, the boy anymore? She's like, yeah. So I'm like, so it's kind of true, right? She said, yeah. Hmm. So, you know, is the story of the boy who cried wolf trustworthy? Well, if we mean, did it really happen? Then probably not. But do we mean, is the message true? I'd say absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear more. This is LaShawn. I'd love to hear more about the Ethiopian Orthodox canon. Oh, yeah. Why are there so many books included in theirs? Also going to get to that later on in the series. Um, I love talking about it because it's so just breaks our mold of Western Christianity. The reminder that we are not the only form of Christianity. We are not the original form of Christianity. So uh, we'll get to that. But yes, or mm-hmm. the Ethiopian Orthodox canon has more books than uh, the Western Protestant or Catholic New Testament. And they also don't have a necessarily closed canon. So mm-hmm. we'll talk about that more. Okay. Sherry says, how many women helped in the process? That was sarcasm. Ooh. Uh, what were the qualifications of the members? Did the members really believe that the writings were the, quote, literal word of God? Did the members understand the Jewish process of Midrash when writing the Gospels? Which, that's, isn't that like the debate, mm-hmm. the Jewish debate? Um, did the members have Jewish backgrounds or knowledge of Jewish cultural writing practices? Um, so, there seems a lot of questions there around, like, who, who, were, these, yeah. who were these members? Who got, the who got to make members? these decisions? I'll push that to another episode as well. Okay. All right. <laughs> Uh, Amber says, why didn't Jesus write anything down? That's all caps, Mm. so I kind of yelled it. (laughs) And why do we act like he did? Actually, I have an uneducated theory about this, but I want to hear other people say more about it. Yeah, I think we talked about that on our last episode, right? That I I feel like it's somewhat intentional or could be intentional that Jesus didn't write anything down. And I think that actually allows us to work from a place of more freedom and just acknowledging the humanity of the whole process. Peggy says, love the episode. I feel like I should know this, but why did Jesus preach in Aramaic and not Hebrew? Why would those same disciples write in Hebrew when they heard it in Aramaic? I'm assuming it was their audience, but does this mean everyone was just bilingual in that culture? Would Jesus have then been bilingual too, and depending on his audience, choose either Hebrew or Aramaic? Or am I just jumping to conclusions when probably they wrote in Aramaic and we only saw the translated uh, it translated into Hebrew copies. You're a linguist. Let's hear your <laughs> Yeah, and, and maybe this is helpful for, I mean, it's one of those things that I know can be confusing and what, what was actually going on linguistically at the time and that differs depending on what region of the ancient Near East you were in. But at the, you know, in Judea, in the first century, most of the people, the Jews would be speaking, their native tongue would be Aramaic. Hebrew would only be used in a religious context, um, which we don't really have that concept in um, North America or most Western parts of the world, because for the most part, we only speak one language. Um, but other cultures, like cultures that speak German, are, are they would know what that's like because they use low German in their day-to-day life and they use high German in a religious context. So that, and that, that still happens today. So similarly, Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew, but um, a bit more colloquial. Um, so that was that was the spoken language. What does colloquial mean? I mean, I just know kind of more more like day to day usage, not okay. as formal of a language. Hebrew was by the time Jesus um, was existed, 
um, Hebrew was more of a formal language and not your what you used in daily life. Aramaic was daily life. Greek was used by the empire. And so that was more of the trade language. So if you were going to um, be educated in any way that was going to you know, move you forward culturally, then you would also speak Greek. So if anything, the people around Jesus, they either only spoke Aramaic or were likely bilingual in Aramaic and Greek. Nobody really mm-hmm. spoke Hebrew as a conversational piece. So Jesus would teach in Aramaic. At the time, nobody was writing anything down. By the time it got written down, the disciples were writing it in Greek or whoever was writing it, where they were writing it in Greek, because that was the language that was going to get spread throughout the empire. So the New Testament was never really written down in Hebrew at all. It went right from Aramaic to Greek, you know, oral form of an Aramaic, then written in Greek. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Tom says, could you circle back to some of that discussion from earlier episodes on how the biblical texts were knitted together like a mosaic? I found that incredibly helpful. Uh, Tom's talking about our, a series we did a few years back called how the Bible works, and we talked a lot about how the biblical texts, you know, we have these, we have texts that were, that were written down, and then what you can see evidence of um, is how those texts were kind of chopped up, pieces taken out of different places, put in different places for different purposes, and kind of put together kind of like a, a quilt almost, where you would take scraps of things and, and you're repurposing um, real texts that were written, but you're repurposing purposing them all at a later date for, you know, different, uh, with a different goal in mind. And that's largely, that's pretty much Old Testament. So that series kind of covers a lot of that and you can go check that out. And we may, you know, get there and talk about different things like that um, as we go. But yeah, that's largely Old Testament stuff. And I think, I think that's all the questions we have. If you want to get a question into a future episode, go to almostradical.com and then there's banners around and you can join the community basically. Um, and uh, we put questions out to that community and we'd love to have you in there. There's lots of great conversations and um, just, it's been fun to get to know mm-hmm. a lot of you on a deeper level. And we see you, you know, every month or so on these zoom calls that we do, we see you um, that face that we then know we then see in the, in the Facebook group and um, you're sharing different things that you're experiencing and, um, so love yeah. that. It's been like Jonathan's so question fun. that was in there about truth. We actually, he yeah. was on our last call and we got to discuss that as a group and that was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I know for a lot of you out there, you know, church is complicated and you don't go probably, or maybe you do, but you, you, know, you don't feel like you have that community of people there. So that's what we're hoping to create here. And we have a couple hundred people in that group. And so we'd love to have you a part of that as well. All right. So this episode now that we're through the questions, we are talking about... That was fun, though. Keep them coming. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think that's a great way to kick off episodes. Um, we're talking about inspiration and this word mm-hmm. inspiration. What, is that, what does that actually mean? And um, I know that just like stirs up a lot of stuff for me when I think about inspiration. And, the um, you know, I, I think, and we've talked about this on, the, on Almost Heretical over the years, but I think the first thing that still comes to my mind is, you know, this person entering into a trance and... Uh, mm their eyes kind of like roll back up into their head and they have a, a quill and mm-hmm. ink and they're just like writing these words. They don't know what they're doing. Their arm is essentially being taken over by God and is writing is writing these words down. And that's what it means for something to be inspired. I mean, that yeah. still comes up from, from like my childhood. Yeah. What Even I, though there's I don't know essentially, there's, yeah, there's essentially no picture of that in the Bible. I don't know. I, I mean, but I, 
But I don't think you were you taught. I wasn't taught that. I don't know if I was taught that. But of course, if we're taught that, you know, God used these people to write his exact words down. Then, imagine yeah, how else are we yeah. going to picture it? Right. What did you, I mean, is that what you thought of? For Yeah, something like that. Or I just thought, you know, that maybe they were writing, feeling like they were writing kind of their own words, but it just so happened that God was actually, right. you know, fixing their brains to the right yeah. words every single time. But, so what does inspired yeah, I mean. so this whole episode is going to be on inspiration because, I mean, the series is on canon formation and when it comes to talking about the canon, specifically focusing on the New Testament canon, there's, um, I mean, we've come, we grew up, and I think a lot of people listening to this show grew up thinking that the, what made the canon, the canon, what made these books, the ones that form the New Testament, is the quality of being inspired. That because mm. these texts are inspired, they are in the Bible. Right. And that is a, actually a completely false statement. And even, I mean, the early church did not put that forward. And so that's what we're going to get into in this episode and in the next. So the three questions that I want to look at in this episode are, first, do the scriptures claim to be inspired? Secondly, what do we mean by inspired? And then last, what did the ancient authors in the early church mean by inspired? So... Well, I already know the answer to question one, so we can skip to question two. <laughs> question one is just all scripture is God's mm, breathed, right? Mm-hmm. And it's useful. So doesn't that answer <laughs> doesn't that answer it? I mean, that's what's gonna be thrown right at someone when you say I'm I'm assuming you're gonna say scripture does not claim to be inspired. Are you? Well, but you're you're right to point go first to that verse. Okay, so we're talking about the first question. Do scriptures claim to be inspired? Your first immediate reaction is Second Timothy three sixteen, which says All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and something else. Correcting and training in righteousness. A, what's funny is like I've been in um I've been in groups where the emphasis was on the teaching, right? And I've been in groups where the emphasis was on the rebuking. <laughs> I they <laughs> those those Bible college days, like man, there's something about a a twenty something male white guy in Bible college that just loves to find a good rebuke. And yeah, they were rebuking everything. Oh, man, that sounds, does (laughs) not sound pleasant. No. But, so, do the scriptures claim to be inspired? I mean, let's start with that verse. It's the most common one that's going to be brought up. All scriptures are God-breathed or inspired, depending on which translation that you use. Um, So, that's, you know, that's our most direct claim in the canon to something regarding uh, the scriptures claiming to be inspired. So, let's look at that a little more closely, actually. Um, if, I mean, most people aren't, you know, most of you are probably in your car or on a walk or something, but if you want to, you know, dive in a little deeper to figuring out how to do some of this research for yourself, it's pretty simple um, as far as digging into this word inspired. Like, I, I want I want people to know that you don't have to get a master's in biblical studies. You don't have to go to seminary to be able to figure some of this stuff out and dig a little deeper. So, if you have the ability to right now, you could go to blueletterbible.com. It's just a free website that I use for digging into terms. So if you go to blueletterbible.com. Which is a colorblind person. I just red letter. I mean, I didn't know until I was, I think, 15 that I, that my Bible was red. I didn't know what that meant. I mean, no one ever explained. I think it was just like, yeah, of course there's red red letters in your Bible, but I was colorblind. So I didn't just, they didn't just pop out to me. didn't know which ones were red? So I didn't even think about the concept of like, oh, the words of Jesus are in red. Like, so, anyways, I know that's not what this site is about. I'm like, we're going to switch the words <laughs> of Jesus to, to blue. Throw that but tidbit in there. That would have been great if I could have had a colorblind mode Bible. 
<laughs> okay, that's that's great. Um, but if you're in blueletterbible.com and you look up 2 Timothy 3.16 and then you click on interlinear and then you can go to the word, in this case, the Greek word that we're looking at. You don't have to know Greek to be able to look it up, but it'll it'll have it paralleled for you right there. The Greek word is theopanoustos. And Bless you. you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad joke. Somebody okay. is in a funny mood today. Um, so if you click on the word theopanoustos, It'll tell you all the times that that's used in the Bible, the books that we call the Bible. And what it'll tell you is this is the only time it's ever used in the Bible. So 2 Timothy 3.16 is the only time we see the word theopanoustos. And as I think we mentioned before, scholars have actually done a lot of research around this because it's kind of an important word. And it turns out this is the very first documented use of this word ever in Greek. There's no earlier use of the word theopneustos in Greek literature, which has led um, scholars to believe that Paul maybe kind of created this word as he was writing, that he was going, how can I, well, Paul or the whoever wrote the second Timothy, as I said earlier, was likely not Paul. So the person who was writing this letter was going, it was trying to find a way to explain you know, this this concept that he was feeling about what the scriptures are. And so what he did was he put together two words, theos and panoustos. Theos means God. Panoustos means wind, spirit, breath. So that's where we get the idea of God breathed, theos and panoustos. And then uh, uh it's related to the word pneumaticos, which was more commonly used, which is another way to say inspired, kind of the the, the mm. spirit. It's within the spirit of. I mean, that's literally what the word, even the word inspired in English is is a form of like putting breath into or putting spirit into something. So, so instead of just saying pneumaticos, meaning inspired, the author of Second Timothy wanted to specify who was doing the inspiring and that's why he added theos on the on the front and that was why it became theopanoustos so so when we go with the concept that this is the first time that this word's being used and it's the only time it's being used in scripture then in order to actually talk about what does it mean like we can't just make something up we have to go with, with the context and and then start to look outward toward other times that it's used outside of scripture so the context i, I mean the best way and this is i mean i, I did learn this as, as i was growing up in church if you're not sure what a verse is saying keep reading that's something my pastor used to say so the whole verse says all scripture is god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness personally i think that probably the best way to describe what the word inspired or God breathed here meant is to what he literally says next, which is useful, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Probably that's what he's getting at is that all scripture has this divine quality that makes it incredibly useful. Not saying that I know that for sure, but that's, that's where I would go. But now we have to go outside scripture to go, okay, how did this term theopanoustos, God breathed, inspired, how did it um, grow to be used by the early church? Because that would give us a, a big idea of how they understood it. Right. Is it being used to talk about documents that are you know, somehow created with this trance person who's getting this directly from God, or do they use it in a different way? So we're actually going to look about at that when we answer the, our third question of the day, which is what did the ancient authors mean by inspired?
So the question we are just working on is, do the scriptures claim to be inspired? We looked at 2 Timothy 3.16, and it's, you know, it's using this word that we assume a lot of meaning about, but theopanoustos is this new word. We don't know necessarily exactly what it means. Also, important point to note, when it says all scriptures, what is it talking about there? It doesn't obviously mean the Bible as we think of it today, because the Bible didn't exist. There right, was I no mean, canon. Yeah, like in verse 15, right before 16, um, they're saying like, you have learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through the faith. in Jesus. So like, yeah, the what's that word holy scriptures there? Would that be referring to? Well, and if someone, I mean, at the time of Second Timothy, this is, you know, maybe the end of the first century or the beginning of the second century. So anyone who's learned something from infancy, it hasn't been Christian scriptures. It's probably been Jewish scriptures. That's likely what he's talking about. I don't think anyone would have been referring to Christian writings as scripture at that point yet. I mean, we're just within decades of the life of Jesus. And Paul would definitely not be referring to the words of Paul or someone inspired by Paul would not be referring to the words of Paul as as the Bible, as scripture, probably. No, like would, yeah, probably not strange. by this point. Yeah. So likely they're referring to the Hebrew Bible, which in an, which also hadn't really been fully canonized at that point, which is why they're using the term scripture, because scripture is kind of an open-ended, constantly growing body of literature. Um, so yeah, when this person is using that, all scripture is God-breathed, when we equate that to the Bible is written by God, like that's we're completely misdefining multiple of the terms in in this verse. Was really what the ancient author is saying is the scriptures that you've grown up with, which is the Hebrew Bible, are divinely useful because God has been part of the process. Like that's and that's what that person, this author, believed about scriptures. Yeah, that's very different than I mean, like I'm saying, like this, the words that because uh, the all scriptures God breathed. That, that's in the Bible, right? So someone today who's saying a person was writing <clears throat> under a trance, that would be in, that verse would be included in probably be their main justification, right? It would, would be the justification, but it also would be included in what is inspired. And oh, so I'm saying, yeah. as this person is writing these words, they're not thinking these words are included in what is right. inspired by God. They're mm-hmm. talking about other. They're clearly talking about something else. They're saying right. the ones you've known since infancy. Obviously, not the words this person is saying right now, but now. Today, people will argue all of that's all of those words, including Second Timothy, mm-hmm. is an inspired. But you can't. It's just like a logical. Right, right. It's illogical to say the words that this person is writing are the words that they were talking about. It's like that doesn't even yeah. make sense. And I mean, speaking of logical fallacies, even asking the question that we're asking right now, which is, do the scriptures claim to be inspired? Like that's we're not asking if we're we're not saying that if the scriptures claim to be inspired that therefore they are because i mean that is a that's like i could say that i'm inspired right now but who's to say that i am or the book of mormon could claim to be inspired but any evangelical christian will tell you that just because it claims it doesn't mean that it's true so the reason really the reason that i wanted to start with this question at all of do the scriptures claim to be inspired is is just because so many of us have grown up with these assumptions built in and so i just wanted to help with kind of addressing those. And so we just addressed the biggest one, which is that verse of all scriptures, God breathed. But there are some other claims of scripture that people might present. Um, the big one being that the, the scriptures are the word of God. So they kind of in quotes that that statement, word of God. Right. Um, do you, do you want to look up a verse for me? Yeah. Ready? It's 
Oh, you're not using your Bible, so it's not really a true sword drill. But First Thessalonians 2.13. Okay. It's going to use this phrase, word of God, and we're going to talk about what it might be referring to and what it's not referring to. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. What do you think word of God maybe means in this context? What's So this is First Thessalonians. So it's, an, it's a letter being written to the church in Thessalonica in the New Testament yeah. time. I mean, there's no New Testament yet. So when it says you receive the word of God from us, is it, are they talking about the Bible? There's no Bible yet. Right. Well, and just like a printed, like, did they deliver a, no. some parchment to you or scrolls to you? That's probably not what they're talking about. They're probably talking about some form of encouragement, truth, you know, like some helpful message from. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think message is much more of an accurate um, picture of what they meant by, in this verse, by the word of God that was given from them to this church, that they delivered the word of God and that it was received. Um, I think a message is much more of an accurate term. Can you look mm. up John seventeen seventeen? John seventeen seventeen. It says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So this is in John, a gospel. This is um, Jesus, you know, this, these are words attributed to Jesus saying, your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Mm. What, you know, what, would it, what does the author see as, you know, when it says your word? Is, is he talking about the Bible? I mean, likely just something much more um, nebulous, really. Like it's not, when we think of word, we think of written form. We think of print. Um, we think of, you know, accurate spelling. And this is an oral culture where most words that you ever encounter are going to be spoken. I mean, most words we encounter are also spoken, but we're just completely surrounded and saturated by a written print culture as well. Whereas, I mean, and for thousands of years, the, the, the word word, this is getting a little bit inception-like, <laughs> the word word was mainly an oral concept of something that is spoken. And something that's spoken, it's, it's said and then it's gone until it's said again and then it's gone. This is just a whole different way of thinking about it than someone mm. having, you know, here it is on a piece of paper. It's going to stay exactly the same forever. So, right. so just thinking about the word of God, which we use synonymously with Bible. I mean, just it's, it is exactly the same in the evangelical mind, the word of God and the Bible. Right. And that is, it's so far from how the ancient mind would have thought of it. Yes, the, the, in the Jewish mind, the, the Hebrew texts were words from God, but the word of God was something so much bigger than just these texts. And it was something that could continue at any time. Hmm. Yeah, that's a very different way. I mean, it's hard to turn off a certain thing that you've, you know, that you have turned on in your brain. You know, it's like the, it's like the, you know, fish trying to analyze the water that you're, it's just, it is what you are swimming in. Right. And so like, it's hard to go back and think about what would these concepts mean if we didn't have you know the printing press or we didn't have now the, the digital digital form of words too right the internet and their phones and we're looking at words all day long scrolling through different words all day long it's hard to 
turn that off and unlearn, you know, unknow <laughs> that um, and go back to a time where that wasn't what it would mean. And that, you know, so, I mean, they, they definitely had written words, but that wasn't the primary form of communication. That wasn't, um, it wasn't as significant as it is now. But yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's a completely different way of thinking about it. Yeah. So, so that wraps up kind of our discussion of what does, what do scriptures claim about themselves? Does the clip, does the, do scriptures claim to be inspired? Um, and they, I mean, we really can't talk about scriptures as a single unit. You know, some, some texts claim inspiration of other texts. Like that was essentially what second Timothy was doing. Mm-hmm. Second Timothy is saying that the Hebrew scriptures are inspired and, you know, what they mean by that is up for discussion. So is the whole entire unit of the canon, the the Old and New Testament, or even just the New Testament, does it claim to be inspired? No, it doesn't. It doesn't claim it about itself. Maybe future church authors and leaders are going to make those kinds of claims about it. But um, I start with that to just lay the foundation that maybe this is not as essential as as we make it out to be. If none of these texts even had any concern for whether what they were writing was inspired by God. That was, it just wasn't a concept really in their mind. And the don't add anything to this book. We just addressed that in the last episode, but the, at the end of Revelation, that's not what this is talking about, right? Right. Well, and I mean, that book almost didn't even get added to the canon to begin with. So some people didn't think that was, and it was referring to itself Mm -hmm. and it was a vision within it within right okay all right so question number two number two is what do we mean by inspired what did we grow up with what were the assumptions we had built into that term what are some other words that you know if you imagine the sermon that you grew up hearing about the bible being inspired what did that mean what are some other words that come to mind for you Hmm. yeah i mean we talked a little bit about the you know the trance-like state That, that was i don't think ever taught that's just kind of the next logical step if it's someone that is God is speaking through, right? Like you just imagine and kind of draw pictures on the sermon sheet of what that could look like. Did you draw pictures on the oh, sermon yeah. sheet? Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. So you're normal. <laughs> just <kidding. laughs> so because the Bible, if if you're taught the Bible is inspired, therefore it is inerrant. Ah. So the, the inerrancy go. of scripture. Yeah. Which is tied very closely to infallibility. Right. Kind of the same it's idea. Impossible to be wrong. It's Yeah. It's bulletproof. Yeah, and it has no errors. It is inspired by God, therefore it is perfect and without error. So if there's a seeming a seeming contradiction in there... Then the problem is probably with us. Right, we're just not understanding it enough. And that further puts humans in this spot of like, God's ways, you know, are higher than our ways. We can't know, you know, that's, that's just the... There's just these two truths that are there and there's some way to weave them together and we just aren't smart enough to figure it out. Yeah. Exactly. So does the Bible, do any text in the Bible actually claim any form of inerrancy? Hmm. Uh, Not really, aside from there's kind of a poetic verse in Psalm 19 that says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. That's probably the most, the closest we're going to get to something discussing, something referring to inerrancy. But in reading Psalm 19, something to note, first of all, this is a poem. Lit- the literary form is a poem. Um, 
And secondly, it's not referring to everything that we would now call the Bible. I mean, it's a psalm. It was written around the time of David. So clearly there's a lot of literature that's been written, but there's a lot of literature even in the Old Testament, much less the New Testament, that hasn't been written. So for mm-hmm. us to take a verse like this that says, you know, the, the the law of the Lord is perfect or the statutes of the Lord are, you know, endure forever and are right, and to sit, to then take that and apply it to, you know, all of the books in our canon are therefore perfect is really mis- misreading the psalm and what it's talking about. That's how a lot of people use the Bible. I mean, it's scary, right? Like I, there's, without naming names, we name names on Utterly Heretical, our <laughs> second podcast. If you want to go check that out, um, we tell stories in more depth and uh, detail and share names. Um, but without naming names, people that I've worked with in the past, prominent Christian speakers, like they will, as they're creating their case, they're speaking to thousands of people <clears throat> and they're creating this case of like, whatever they're trying to say in that sermon, in that in that speech, right? They'll like say something and then they'll go like, and we know that's true because, and they'll go to the Psalms and they'll say, they'll say something about like, because look what it says in, have you, have you guys ever read Psalm 39? I know I'm just mm. making up it. And then they'll, they'll take one line out of the Psalm and be like, see this, see, that's how we can know that this is blah, 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 right? It's like, wow, yeah, that's true, you know? Like, and it creates this airtight thing, but like, and that's on the, you could literally get the Bible to say whatever you want it mm-hmm. to say. You, I mean, if you use the Bible that way, you can literally get it to say whatever you want it to say. And I think that's that's sort of what happens with these type of interpretations. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what that psalm is. I mean, but but someone who who interprets the Bible that way, sure, that's exactly what that means. Yeah. You know, if it says at one time in the Bible, that is what it means, and it means this entire thing. But it doesn't even make sense logically that, like you said, like this was written at the time of David. Does that mean that anything written after this, until until someone says stop, is included? And who's, who's to say, who gets to say stop? Constantine. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right, and it's it's um, it's I mean a cyclical problem that, and it's very tied to the time in which you live. I mean, yeah, for someone to say, okay, Psalm 19 says this, therefore it applies to the whole Bible. It's like, okay, well, you wouldn't have been able to say that same thing in 200 BC because there was no Bible. You wouldn't have been able to say that same thing in 200 AD, because there was still no Bible. So the only reason you're even able to say that is because you live after Constantine and the creation of the canon. And so it's a very time-based claim to be able to make. Yeah. And I think, I just thought it was right now. So this, let's just see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of risk. You just we can edit this. For the first no, time. Yeah. Well, maybe. Um, that's the other thing about Utterly Heretical, our second mm-hmm. podcast. We don't edit it. Unedited. Unedited. Um, but I feel like a lot of the Christians that are using the Bible this way today, if you were to plop them in, you just said that thing about like, mm-hmm. you couldn't use that in 200, right? Like if you were to plop them in 200, I bet they would be the ones that are like, you can't be, you, this is not, don't add that book to the, you know, like they would probably mm. not be wanting any, they would not want, have It'd wanted. It'd probably be the Pharisees. <laughs> the, the, yeah. And they wouldn't they, have they wanted would have the thought future, Jesus future co- books to be added. I mean, imagine Jesus comes, Jesus comes on the scene and says, you've heard that it was said, quote scripture, but I say, says something new. I mean, they we would, would hate Jesus if he showed up today and started changing what we've said is inspired, inerrant, infallible, unchangeable scripture. Because he just, that's exactly what he did. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Let's okay. continue with the second question. So anyway, um, the, the idea of inerrancy and infallibility is not really a, a biblical concept. And then my, my last question in that is, is it necessary? Like, why do we 
Is this question three or is this part of this question part, two? This is the last part of question two. Okay, sorry. I have to have We're a talking about what do we mean by inspired. Okay. And usually the, the modern concept of inspired includes this idea of inerrant, infallible. And my question is, why is that necessary? Why do we need it to be inerrant or infallible? Need, I don't know, but want... Uh, it's <laughs> okay very, why do we want it uh, it's very helpful right to have i mean everyone wants to have the the i feel like this term has gotten destroyed but the trump card of uh truth mm. yeah right and so to be able to have a book and a lot of a lot of religions do this with their yeah. sacred text right but like to be able to have a book that is the ultimate source of truth and it's, it's like, attractive. hey, yeah, and you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with you're arguing with the, the truth. You're arguing with this book, you know, and uh, yeah. So it's it's this ultimate source of truth. It's the truth trump card. Why wouldn't you want that? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, to which you would have to respond that the those texts do not claim that kind of um, authority and truth. Some do, some don't. But um, one reason I think that it feels so necessary in kind of modern Western Christianity for the Bible to be inerrant, infallible, unchanging, eternal, all those things. So I think that we have um, unknowingly started to equate the, the Bible with God. That we think that the Bible is supposed to have the same characteristics that God has. The Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. Yeah, yeah exactly. But like, if we're going to believe that God is perfect, then, I mean, and I've heard people say this, like, if God is perfect, then of course his word would be perfect, which is just making this huge leap of on many different levels. But And that if God is unchanging, then therefore his word is unchanging, His the which then we would say means the Bible. And... And I just think that that is a very unstated and unhealthy um, mindset that a lot of us have been given, this idea that the Bible's characteristics should match God's characteristics. Mm. We tend to think that if God is unchanging and perfect and all-knowing and complete, that the Bible should therefore be unchanging, perfect, all-knowing, complete. But nowhere does anyone claim within those scriptures that these texts are God, are are of the same quality as God. They are written documents on parchments that came from stories that are documenting the history of the Jewish people or what happened when Jesus was around from a couple decades later and or instructions to the church. Like for us to think that these texts should have the same qualities as the God that they're talking about is either ridiculously elevating the texts or really lowering the God that they're talking about. So I think if we could just start to separate and real and just really treat these texts as texts and not, and, and realize that if they're in, if they have errors or if they get changed over time, that doesn't somehow mess up our view of God because they aren't God, they're texts. And if we can separate those, I think that'll help us a lot. Hmm. That's a good point. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? 
No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. The last thing that I think we assume by inspired when we say that the Bible is inspired is that we, we, it means that it's true, which brings us back to this term that came kind of from Jonathan's question earlier. We've talked about off and on in different episodes, I think, of what do we mean by the Bible being true and how does, if it's inspired, it's true. What does, what does that mean? And of course, that brings us to the what we talked about earlier, there's different senses of truth. Does it mean factual or does it mean valuable or does it mean, you know, have some meaningful way that it lines up with reality? Like there's a lot of different ways that it could be true. You said something really interesting the other day when we were talking to my grandma, with my grandma, um, about truth when it comes to, as it, like in the sense of language and how language mm-hmm. impacts truth. Can you, do you know what I'm talking about? And can you share more about that? Yeah. Um, it's what I was saying to to grandma was um, when people talk about ultimate truth and like, is there ultimate truth? Um, I've just kind of, as a a linguist come to the, the, the realization that if there is ultimate truth, and I, I think I believe that there is like an ultimate something that is true, whatever that means, but we wouldn't be able to put it into words because if we put it into words, then it's we're immediately capturing it in one language and it's never going to be able to be fully exactly translated into another language. I mean, some languages are going to be closer than others, but like if I was to have a way to somehow describe truth in English, it will not come across the same way in Arabic. And, and how could that, like it, that there, it can't be true then if it's only able to be. So I, th- I just really believe that whatever ultimate truth is, is uh, probably not able to be put into words. Well, I think you said also like that that's not a helpful question almost. Like mm. is we you know, this like debate about like is there an ultimate truth? Like it's probably not even a helpful thing to <laughs> to debate or to wonder or to you know try to like get to the bottom of because who like true in what language like true and what Mm -hmm. like what's the what's the ultimate foundational truth there plus um and maybe this is where you're going here too but like plus there's different ways and different senses in which something can be true like there's like Mm -hmm. uh, and this is the the way we think a lot in the west now it's like did it historically happen with these exact set of facts right this is like the very western legal you know we need to know if we're in a courtroom like we're going to get down to the the minutia of the case like the did the was that hair found in this 
uh, room or this room was it found at this exact time down to the second mm -hmm. or at this you know we want to know all those things because it's important in our culture and our system that we've created to know all those things but that's not the only sense even today that's not the only sense in which something can be true you talked about that you know the fable the um crying wolf fable like there's a lot of truth there that no one asks i mean we know right we know not to ask about uh, a fable like that well like well okay well when did this even happen so like, yeah can you tell me what year it was like who no was the boy? okay then who cares like no of course it's not a who cares everyone knows like there's still tr there's still something true about this that i can use in my own life so yeah who's the boy? what's his name you don't know his name okay well then it's not what's important not have happened yeah. yeah and it's not important yeah, like, no. But no one says that. No one would say it's not important because you don't know those details because that's not what we're looking for when we come to those kind of stories. We're not looking for that kind of truth, factual truth. Right. So the, what we mean by true can mean a lot of different things. And I want to end this, this question, this, um, you know, what do we mean by inspired? I guess the reason that I went into depth on these different topics, top, different terms like inspired, infallible, inerrant, true because um, I think that a lot of people, when they're piecing apart their beliefs about the Bible, which is where a lot of these listeners are at, where you're deconstructing what you believe about the Bible, it can be this very painful process in which you feel like it's all or nothing. And if this this Bible isn't this perfect word of God that I've always been taught it is, then it's useless. And that's I just want to give you permission to acknowledge that that's not true, actually, that you, someone could, if someone asks you, do you believe the Bible's inspired? You know, someone maybe from your old community or something like that, do you still believe the Bible's inspired? I mean, that would need to be a much bigger conversation because you might not believe what they believe about what that means. You know, they might be asking you that question, assuming that inspired means infallible, inerrant, every word dictated by God. And maybe you don't believe that anymore. But you could very much believe that the Bible is inspired in the sense that maybe influenced by by God and like under the the authors are writing it under the you know admiration of God. I mean that's usually what we mean by inspired when we say, you know, I was inspired by Carly Patterson to start gymnastics. That it's with this this deep emotion and um I mean, what's another word for inspiration in just our daily life? Yeah. Um should we go to the thesaurus for this? <laughs> sure. Influence. Influence. Oh yeah, there we go. Yeah. Motivation, influence. Um and then that you could believe, so you could believe the Bible is influenced by God and inspired by God in that sense. And Impact you could is another one. Impacted Impact. by God. And you could also believe that the Bible is true without necessarily believing that every bit of it is exactly correct and factual. So I just, I guess I want to hand that back to people to say, you can still believe that the Bible is inspired and true without needing to believe that it's inerrant, infallible, unchanging, and completely reliable in every historical detail. Um, and that's that's not what um, the Bible asks of its readers. Okay, so on to the last question, which is the one I'm probably most excited to talk about, and we'll wrap up this episode, which is what did the ancient authors and early church mean by inspired? So the, the, the giveaway here is that the early church actually believed that many things were inspired. They did not reserve the use of that term just for what we would call now canonized documents. So I'm going to, in order to dig a little bit more into this, I'm going to be using um, the book. It's called A High View of Scripture by Dr. Craig Allert. Um, he teaches at Trinity Western University. He was actually the 
um, program director for my master's program. So this is a, a fascinating book. He says that he can only write books that end with a question mark. So really the title of his book is A High View of Scripture. And you'll have to read the book to understand why. But it's called High View of Scripture, The Authority of the Bible and the Formation of the New Testament Canon. And it's a really um, great in-depth academic look at the process of canon formation written for evangelical readers. Um, but I think he does a great job probing and challenging and going a little bit deeper. So it might be a great, good one to read, might be a good one to give as a gift to someone mm. in your life. Yeah, there you go. Um, and I, I use it a lot for a lot of the the things in this series, so highly recommend. But he talks about, doc, Dr. Allert, um, how the early church uses this term inspired or theopanoustos. So I'm going to just read a quick excerpt from his book. He says, for example, the Cappadocian father Gregory of Nyssa makes reference to, this is, he lived in 330 um, BC, or AD, CE. Gregory of Nyssa makes reference to his brother Basil's commentary on the first six days of creation as, quote, an inspired exposition admired no less than the words composed by Moses himself, end quote. So this is mm. a, a church father whose brother wrote a commentary on the first six days of creation. And Gregory is saying that his brother's commentary is inspired using, uses the term theopanouston. So which, which we talked about how that was first used for the very first time in second Timothy, but now it's growing in its use in the early church. And they're using it for other things in this case for his brother's commentary. Gregory continues to explain in his work called Apologia in Hexameron, that Basil's work on the six days of creation may even surpass Moses in magnitude, beauty, complexity, and form. Next example. In the late second century, a certain bishop of Hierapolis named Abersius Marcellus composed an inscription that was set up over his future tomb. So Abersius Marcellus is making an inscription that's going to go on his tomb when he dies. The life of Abersius, so that's a work written about Abersius later, written sometime in the 4th century, documents and contains a text of this inscription. It includes a description of the epitaph composed by Abersius and calls it an inspired inscription, Theopanuston epigramma, an inspired inscription. So this is an example of in the 4th century, so this is very much in the time when the canon was being officially formed. They're using the term inspired, Theopanuston, to literally talk about somebody's epitaph that they put on their tombstone. Hmm. Last example, the 5th century ecumenical council of Ephesus issued a synodical epistle, so like a letter talking about what they talked about in this council, that describes the council's condemnation of Nestorius, a, a person in the early church, they're, they're condemning his theology, and they describe that condemnation as an inspired decision. So, and they use the term theopanuston that their decision to condemn this, you know, heretic is an inspired decision. So he, he concludes saying, these three examples should give one pause when making the assertion that the early church reserved the term theopanoustos for only canonical documents. Because each of these examples uses the word theopanoustos to describe something other than a canonical document. It is apparent, therefore, that while a document that eventually made it into the New Testament canon was considered inspired, this did not guarantee its inclusion because inspiration was not the unique possession of only the canonical documents. That's interesting. So it's kind of a long, maybe heavy, detail-heavy um, 
quote out of this book, but I just wanted to present the fact that the idea of inspiration and specifically Theopanuston, which again means God breathed, was in use by the early church in the time of canonization to refer to things within the canon and outside the canon. Yeah, something some guy's brother wrote. Mm-hmm. Like, He's using it about his brother's commentary. Yeah, it'd be like if I called your blog inspired. I knew you were going to say that and I didn't even stop you because I just <laughs> wanted you to say it. Um, yeah, or, or somebody's epitaph on their tombstone that's inspired. Mm. So really they're using the term inspired much the same way we use the term inspired today about things in general. I mean, the the poem by Amanda Gorman at Biden's inauguration, I would say that was inspired. And, and, I, and that's a similar way of using the term inspired as the early church is using in those first centuries. Hmm. Also, uh, you know, I'm not going to go back to the book to quote all of these, but you, know, you can go read them for yourself if you want to get this book. But he talks about how early church fathers like Ignatius or Clement of Alexandria or Clement of Rome or Eusebius, which you know, if you've done early church research, you've heard some of these names. They all talk about a lot of the New Testament writings, like Paul's writings, as inspired. And then uh, they also talk about some of their own writings as inspired. So it's just, it's a much looser term than we maybe had the impression that it was. Hmm. So really, I want to wrap this up just by laying out the term inspiration and pointing out that it is a factor in ancient minds, but that wasn't what differentiated canonical texts from non-canonical texts. So what's in the Bible versus what's not wasn't determined by whether or not it was inspired. That was a huge comment. I remember when my New Testament professor in, in uh, my first year of my undergrad, and sometimes I just wonder, how did I not hear these things in church growing up? But in just the most basic um, intro to the New Testament course at my Christian university, and when he pointed out inspiration was not actually a criteria for being put into the canon, I, I was just completely mind blown. Hmm. because in my mind that was the only criteria right was is it inspired or is it not but it turns out it wasn't a criteria at all so clearly what inspiration means must be a lot less because the way we're thinking of it is like if god breathed these words out (laughs) should everything that god breathed out be in this book that we have it's like like yeah absolutely but if that's not some of you really want to know what the epitaph was (laughs) (laughs) yeah but if that's not what that word if that's not what that concept actually mm-hmm. means, clearly that, that tells you that's not what that concept mm-hmm. actually means. Because even these early uh, church, mm-hmm. um, they would not have, um, they would not have wanted anything that, anything that was uttered out of the word of, out of the mouth of God. You would, they wouldn't have wanted to not include something like that, right. right? So clearly that's not what it means. So that's really the, the conclusion here is inspiration is not what determines what is or is not in the canon. Of course, the, the question that comes out of that is then, what does determine? What are the criteria of what got to be in the canon and what was not? And that is what we are going to talk about in our next episode. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm sure this brought up a lot of questions for people and you might be thinking about one right now. And if you are thinking about a question right now, I want you to go to almostheretical.com, take part in this community that we've talked about. There's buttons all over where you can join. There's Zoom calls. There's a private sec- or Facebook group. There's a second podcast we do, unedited share more stories, that type of thing. You get all of that stuff, but you also um, will have access to sharing these questions and we incorporate those onto the show just like you heard on this episode. And we're so excited about that. Really excited to get to meet you. Both Shelby and I um, are looking forward to that. So with that, that's the end of this one. And we will see you on the next episode in episode three as we continue on in this canon series. All right, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.